0: Forward they went, and one of the girls walked on each side of the lion, but how slowly he walked. And his great royal head drooped so that his nose nearly touched the grass. Presently he stumbled and gave a low moan, Aslan, dear Aslan, said Lucy, what is wrong? Can't you tell us? Are you ill? Asked Susan. No, said Aslan. I am sad and lonely. Lay your hands on my mane so that I may, that I may feel you are there and let us walk like that. And so the girls did what they would never have dared to do without his permission, but what they had longed to do ever since they had first saw him. They buried their cold hands in the beautiful sea of fur and stroked it and so doing walked with him. And presently they saw that they were going with him up the slope of the hill on which the stone table stood. They went up at the side where the trees came furthest up and when they got to the last tree, it was the one that had some bushes about it, Aslan stopped and said, oh children, children, here you must stop. And whatever happens, do not let yourselves be seen. Farewell. And both the girls cried bitterly, though they hardly knew why and clung to the lion and kissed his mane and his nose and his paws and his great sad eyes. Then he turned from them and walked out to the top of the hill. And Lucy and Susan, crouching in the bushes, looked after him, and this is what they saw. This is an excerpt of C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Aslan is the Christ-like figure in the story, and here he depicts for us the moments right before he goes to lay down his life for Edmund the Guilty, who the White Witch had captured and made a prisoner. Aslan takes the place of Edmund and is beat and tortured and finally killed at the hands of the army of the White Witch. But because Aslan is innocent, he dies in the place of the guilty Edmund. The deep magic is reversed. The stone table cracks. And Aslan rises from the dead in victory and releases the prisoners who the white witch held captive. So I pray that we begin to feel the mood of this passage today as it presses on us the immense weight of sin on our Savior. For many of us, from here on out, this gospel narrative will sound familiar and it will have familiar elements of what takes place in the last three chapters of Mark They're at the very heart of what Christ actually did to save sinners. This is called Christ's active obedience. But too often, church, we wait until Good Friday or Easter to really focus in on these moments in the final days of Christ's earthly life. But for the Christian, we should meditate on his life, death, burial, and resurrection often. Why? This is what the song says that sometimes we sing. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life, and I know that it is finished. And I will not boast in anything no gifts, no power, no wisdom but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death. And resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart his wounds have paid my ransom. Father, I pray this morning that you would help us feel the immense weight of this passage as the Lord Jesus, all those thousands of years ago, went before us. And he prayed. Lord, help us by your Holy Spirit this morning. We love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Mark chapter 14, if you would. Mark 14. We'll begin in verse 26. It says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's look first at verse 26, and we pick up where we left off last week. As Jesus and his disciples, they share in this Passover meal, and the institution of the Lord's Supper, or communion, is established. The Passover lamb, who is Jesus, is the meal. And each time we share in the Lord's Supper, we share in his sufferings, we remember the price he paid to ransom us, and we look forward to the day that he feeds us forever. So verse 26 transitions us with the traditional end to the Passover meal as they would sing what is called the Egyptian Hillel. And this derived from Psalms 115 to 118. So imagine this for just a minute, church. Jesus had just turned the world of the disciples upside down by announcing he was the true and better Passover lamb. And Jesus knew what was coming in the next few hours. It was his betrayal and his arrest. And they take time to worship God in song as they head east to the Mount of Olives. This is astounding to say the least. And again, it points us to Zephaniah 3.17 where it says, the Lord God will be in our midst and he will sing a song over us. But listen, it also presses on us this way, that no matter what comes our way, as Christians, Will we respond in worship? Will we respond in worship? Look at verses 27 through 31. Again, Jesus discombobulates the disciples by quoting from Zechariah's prophecy as he said that God will strike the shepherd. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the shepherd who the father will strike. The son of man and the sheep will be scattered. So we have to deal with the tension here. The father himself will strike his one and only son through his own creation, who this creation intends evil on his son, who is destined to drink the cup of the father's fury for his own. Listen, God uses evil men for his glory and for the salvation of sinners. We have to deal with this tension that the Bible presses on. But the verse doesn't stop there. It says that when the shepherd is struck, his sheep will scatter. Simply, they will abandon him like sheep do when spooked. I don't know if you've ever been around sheep, but sheep are not fight first, then flight, kind of like a horse is. Upon the threat of harm, Sheep are always flight. They always run away when they feel like there's a threat. The disciples will betray him. They will abandon him. And listen, some will even deny him. And Jesus continues and he meets them with mercy in verse 28. Look at verse 28. That after his resurrection, he says, after my resurrection, I will go before you to Galilee. And what does the last half of that mean? It furthers the point that there will not be a messianic uprising in Jerusalem, but his ascension will take place in Galilee. So he's telling them to look forward to something that's gonna happen. But notice that he doesn't listen. Notice that he doesn't say anything about meeting him halfway, or make sure you fix your abandoning ways before you see me again. No, he says, I will go before you. Listen, church, this is a long-standing message weaved throughout scripture. I am the God who goes before you. Maybe this is what you need to hear this morning, is that God has already gone before you. As hopeless and as dark as your situation might seem, God has gone before you. And here, the Lord Jesus does not look at the disciples and say, Hey, for those of you that didn't abandon me, for those of you who didn't deny me, for those of you who didn't betray me, then I'll I'll meet you at this secret place and we can kind of have this hangout there. No, he says, After I die and rise again, I will go before you. Do you believe that? Christian, do you believe that? That the Bible says that God goes before us? Or are we trying to get ahead of him? Are we we sure? Just like Christian prayed, are we sure that we are in Christ, that he has gone before us? And watch Peter and Jesus' back and forth in verses 29 through 31. Peter's nose, it kind of rises in pride as he looks down on the other disciples and he tells Jesus, this is what he says, even if they fall away, even if all all those guys fall away, I will not. But listen, Jesus meets him with sovereignty and truth as he forecasts for Peter what will happen in the next few short hours. Peter will deny him three times before 3 a.m. That's usually when the rooster would crow, at 3 a.m. But Peter replies with certainty and what seems like loyalty to the death. The ESV, which we read out of most times, tells us that Peter said emphatically. He He tells the Lord Jesus emphatically, which would mean forcefully or without doubt. But I like the way the legacy standard and the Christian standard versions say, they said that Peter kept insisting, meaning he didn't just say it once. He kept tugging on Jesus's clothes and telling them, Jesus, I'm in. I'm in. I'm in on this, even if I have to die. But excluding Judas, as we can assume that he's already deserted them at this time, the last six words of verse 31, look at verse 31. It tells us that the other 10 disciples said they were just as in as Peter. So they were being just as emphatic and just as insistent as Peter is. Peter's saying, even if all these guys fall away, I will not. The Lord Jesus says, before the rooster crows at 3 a.m. this morning, you will deny me three times, Peter. And Peter, it says, the word says that he kept tugging at Jesus saying, no, even if I have to die, I will not betray you. I will not deny you, Jesus. And so do the disciples. They follow along. They follow suit in this. And it would do good for us to stop here and ask ourselves... What does our commitment to Christ look like when hardship comes? Listen, church, look at me for just a moment. Is, is God really good all the time? If we say that he's good when, uh, when good things are happening or when our bank account is full or when whatever is happening in our lives, do we feel like God is only good then or is he good even when our life is not going well? Is He good all the time? Or listen, church, look at me for just a moment, or are we being liars? Are we being liars? Are we saying that God is good all the time only when we feel like He's being good to us? Or sometimes, listen, when He disciplines His children, is He still good? Is He still good? Can we say that he is good all the time? Look at verses 32 through the first part of verse 41. Jesus and the now 11 disciples, as we can assume Judas has gone on to betray Jesus, they go to a place within the Mount of Olives called the Garden of Gethsemane, meaning the olive press. And this likely belonged to a wealthy follower of Jesus and was walled in and provided some privacy for Jesus to pray. He leaves the eight disciples, uh, the other eight disciples, at a specific place in the garden, and he tells them, sit here while I pray. And those are very specific instructions as we see that he gives Peter, James, and John different instructions. Verse 33, look at verse 33. It tells us that he moves, the, him and the four move deeper into the heart of the garden. And it says, Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. So we have a, we have a rule in my house. When there is uh, an impending storm coming, usually in the summertime, we have a rule in my house. That if dad freaks out, then you can freak out. Okay. So most of the time, even if if it feels really threatening and and I'm like, oh gosh, I don't know what's gonna happen, I try to, to have this calming sense in my house because I want my wife to know that, look, listen, I'm not freaking out. I want the kids to know I'm not freaking out. As far as I know, it's only happened one time and that was when there was almost a tornado by our house and the kids were panicking because they saw that I was a little worried, okay? So we have this rule in my house that when there's a storm coming, if dad is freaking out, then you can freak out. And this is what we feel here. As the Lord Jesus grows distressed and troubled, the Greek verbs for distressed and troubled would be astonished or overwhelmed with anxiousness. Again, listen. Yes, Jesus experienced every emotion we ever have, yet he did not sin in those emotions. And I'm not telling you, church, I'm not telling you that your emotions are sin or sinful. Yes, feel your emotions, but it's what we do with those emotions. Look at what happens here. Mark wants us to feel the mood of the passage as he tries to describe what Peter told him about what Jesus may have been experiencing. Look at verse 34. It gives voice to what Jesus was feeling as he tells the three that his soul is very sorrowful, so sorrowful that he could die. Could you imagine feeling this amount of grief? Feeling so overwhelmed by sorrow and grief that you say, I feel like I could die. And this has to be a moment of torment and agony if Christ would lay bare his emotions this way with his words. As he leaves the three, he tells them these are the specific instructions he gives the three remain here and watch. Listen, this should trigger something in us about chapter 13. Stay awake. Stay awake. And Jesus goes on alone deeper into the heart of the garden and he falls to the ground and prays under the immense weight of sin of all those he will save. But listen church, there's language in the next few verses that we need to pay close attention to. It's the tension that the Bible presses on that Jesus is truly God and truly man. Listen, this is the way his prayer is, is, is voiced for us here in mark his prayer is that if it's possible for another way let this cup pass if it's possible for another way and then he also prays not my will but your will he tells the father and we see these distinguishing moments of his divine nature and human nature on display He cries out to his Abba. The Bible says, Abba, Father. It's this immense love that he has for his father. He says to remove the cup that he must drink from, but also trusts fully that his father's will is the best in drinking this cup. Look at Hebrews chapter 5 in the New New Testament. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. Follow along on the screen if you'd like to. It says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus, which means his earthly ministry, offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all Who obey him. Listen, church. This is why the obedient life of Jesus as our substitute is such an important aspect of the gospel. Listen, I want you to to hear this. Okay, so look at me for just a moment. Jesus, in this moment of overwhelming sorrow and grief and suffering, Jesus completely trusted the Father because you don't. Because I don't. He fully trusted his father because we don't. He completely suffered so you won't. So he completely trusted when we don't. And he completely suffered so you won't. If you're a note taker, note that. This is why we need the perfect life of Jesus. There is nothing that Jesus has faced. No anxiety so great that he came up against. That he did not say, well, I don't trust you anymore. You're not good anymore to his father. But he trusted completely in your place and in mine. And he completely suffered. Listen, I know some of you, I know some of your stories here. And I know some of you have suffered a great deal. Some of you at your own foolishness and some because it's been done to you. And listen, my heart goes out to you. But Jesus fully suffered so that you don't have to one day. This is why we need the perfect life of Jesus as our substitute. I'm hoping this is clicking for you. This is an important aspect of the gospel, that Jesus would live perfectly in your place. Listen, without his perfect life, we have no substitutionary death. And we have no resurrection. We need the perfect life of Jesus in our place. The late Dr. Tim Keller says this, Jesus doesn't deny his emotions here. And he doesn't avoid the suffering. He loves into the suffering. In the midst of his suffering, he obeys, listen, for the love of his father and for the love of us. But Jesus does this three times, and all three times he finds his closest disciples asleep, snoozing while he suffers. And look at verse 38. Jesus even gives them ways to be successful in this. Ways to be successful in this watching that he's tasked them with. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Temptation to do what? To be fearful. To be overwhelmed with anxiousness. To fall asleep. Why? Because, he goes on and says here, the spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. The spirit indeed is willing to help you, but your flesh is weak. Listen, church, you can have all the right motives. You can have all the safeguards in place, but unless you are wholly dependent on the spirit of God, it will all be for nothing. You can have a great devotional life, you can have all, like, all the safeguards on your computer and on your phone to keep you from places that you've gone before. You can have uh, a great group of friends around you that keep you from going to dark places. But unless we are wholly dependent on the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, it will all be for nothing. Listen, so here's what I'm asking. Look at me for just a moment. Just as the Lord Jesus collapsed under the immense weight of suffering and sin, I'm asking you, collapse into the arms of Christ. Collapse into the arms of Christ. Listen, you may have been blindsided by something this week that happened this week. I don't know that. Maybe it was a diagnosis Maybe it was something that happened within your family. I don't know. The Lord knows. But just like the Lord Jesus modeled for us here, collapse into His arms. The question was, back in the '90s, when I was in high school, I know that feels like a long time ago but the question, the bracelet that we had around our wrists was, what would who Jesus do? This is one t- time I'll tell you. Do what Jesus did. Collapse into his arms. And the third time Jesus comes to them in verses 40 and the first part of verse 41, it's the same thing. They are fast asleep. These three disciples, his, his inner core disciples, they're fast asleep. And when he wakes them, Jesus wakes them, the Bible says they have no answer for him. Their eyes are heavy with sleep, and he asked him, what are y'all doing? Why are y'all not praying with me? Could you not even pray for one hour? For some of you men, I know that you've come and you prayed with us on those Saturdays and those Wednesdays that we pray. And some of you have told me, you're like, man, Ricky, it's, it's, sometimes it's hard to keep my mind focused. Yes, it is for me too. It's hard to keep our minds focused and not distracted by other things that's going on. But listen, the Lord Jesus here, when he wakes them, he says, could you not even pray for one hour? And the disciples, they have no answer for him. They have no response for the Lord Jesus. And in the middle of verse 41, Jesus transitions the mood with his words as after the third time of catching his disciples asleep, he says, the hour has come. This was, listen, this was the moment Judas gave the chief priests reason to come and arrest Jesus. And you can almost hear the shuffle of the footsteps of Judas and those who anticipated this moment with much glee, marching forward toward the garden. But Jesus would meet them, resolute, step for step, as he and his woefully unprepared men would clash with them in next week's text. This is how I want to end our time. Rewind back to the Old Testament in Genesis, and we see the story of God in a garden. He created with two people he created who rebel against him. And the whole created order is now under the power of sin because of their rebellion. But here, as we fast forward to Mark, it's Mark's narrative, we find ourselves hundreds of years later in another garden where the one who would not give in to temptation but go willingly to a cross to a cross undeserved for those who deserved it. Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, verse two. This is a good one to have memorized, to have it underlined, to have it highlighted, all those things. Hebrews 12, two says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen, the writer of Hebrews there says, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Look at me for just a moment. You are not the founder and perfecter of your faith. You did not find your faith and you do not perfect it along the way. The Lord Jesus does. This is what the writer of Hebrews tells us here. He founds and perfects our faith along the way. As feeble as it might be, as failing as it might be sometimes, he will get us home. Sometimes I wish we would do that song we just did about seeing the Lord Jesus' face. Sometimes I wish we would do that every Sunday. Cause it just, it like emotes something in me and it erupts inside my heart. I've, I, this is just a confession. I have not slept well this week. And I don't know what it is, I don't, I don't think it's stress, I don't think it's anxiety, I don't, I don't know what it is. But I just haven't slept well. And sometimes insomnia comes, I, I have these bouts of insomnia, and last night was probably the worst. And I, everything in me, I, this morning I was like, Lord, I don't wanna preach. I don't wanna, I don't wanna sit in there with those kids and, and be grumpy, and my kids feel that. My wife feels that when I'm like this. So I got up this morning, and I showered, and I got ready, and I went downstairs, and I sat there with my Bible open, and I said, I don't wanna read right now. I, I don't feel like reading. I don't feel like praying. And I just had this overwhelming, this this sense that I was just supposed to collapse into the arms of Christ. And the Spirit reminded me so gently, Ricky, it's not about you. It's not even about the people in the seats. This is about me. This is about what the Lord Jesus has done. This is the good news that we proclaim week after week. We need to hear it. We need to hear about the perfect life of Christ, our substitute, his substitutionary death, that he died in our place. Do we understand that, church, that we deserved to die worse than he did for eternity? That is the payment that we deserve to pay, and he paid it in our place, and he didn't stay dead that just like he promised after three days, he rose victoriously from the grave. This is why we gather together on the Lord's day, on Sunday morning, is because we celebrate what the Lord Jesus did on that third day, that he defeated death, and he sealed it with his spirit. He sealed you and I. The joy that was set before him, despising the shame, the rejection the pain, the suffering, the great sorrow that he felt, he went before you and I. Church, this is why we respond in worship. I'm gonna go ahead and invite the band to come up. This is why we take time to sing after the sermon because it continues to be part of the worship service. This, the sermon should help us erupt in worship. Worship. It should help us sing. It should help us lift our hands. It should help us want to live in obedience. This is the word that God has spoken. Do we trust it? Do we trust it enough to collapse into the arms of Christ? Listen, your marriage might not be going well. Your job might be horrible. there's there's probably secret things going on in your life right now that you you don't want anyone to know about. But listen, the Lord Jesus knows. So why not trust him? Why not trust him this morning? If you are not in Christ and you're being crushed under the weight of sin this morning, come to Christ. Repent of your sin. Turn your back on your old life and say, I don't want that life anymore. It's not working. And the Lord Jesus is not something you try. It's something you give your life to. Your old life will not work. You trying to be a good enough person will not work. Only the Lord Jesus makes a way for us to the Father by placing his spirit inside of us convicting us of sin, removing our hearts of stone and replacing them with the heart of flesh, giving us a birth from above. This is what salvation looks like. It's to know that we have nothing to offer God but our sin and we give it to him, collapsing into the arms of Christ. Come, find rest. And if you are in Christ, again, the reminder goes, just like Jesus did, he collapsed in that garden. Would you, Christian, you who needs rest, you who needs, you just need, you don't know what you need. You, don't even, you can't even put words to what you need. Come and find rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Collapse into his arms. And there, you will find his heart you will find his heart most drawn towards you. I'll be in the back of the room. If you need prayer, if you need counsel, if you have a question, whatever it might be, I'd love to to do that here in the time that we have. But after I pray, we're gonna take a moment. We're just gonna, I, I hope that this place just explodes in worship. That we feel free to lift our hands and to sing as loudly as possible because he is worthy of it. Let's pray.